Many years ago, a book on personal evangelism was written, many years ago, by a, a woman named Rebecca Pippert, Pippert, P-I-P-P-E-R-T, titled, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Anyone here ever read that book, Out of the Salt Shaker? If, if some of you have. I have. It helped me, and it helped a myriad of other believers in reminding us that evangelism ought to be a common outflow from lives filled with the presence of God. Acts chapter 8, if you'd make your way there, the book of Acts chapter 8, when the salt shaker is completely full, it's easy for it to spill out. Now, I did not make this salt shaker completely full, frankly, a couple of reasons. I wanted you to be able to see a little bit of the top. Can you see that, that there's still a little room? Can you see that? I don't know that I've ever been, I'm quite confident I've never been completely full of the Lord. Motives get in the way. Uh, Laziness gets in the way. Ignorance gets in the way. But I have enjoyed times of walking in the Spirit and letting that overflow and spill out onto the world around me. Getting out of the salt shaker and into the world, you say, you're desecrating the property. Folks, this carpet is 29 years old this July. It's had plenty of salt (laughs) in its lifetime, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Out of the salt shaker and into the world. Let's think about that concept. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that is the death of the deacon Stephen, at the end of chapter 7. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Well, in fact, all of the church was at Jerusalem up to that point. And, um, and, they, uh, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing or dragging men and women out and committed them to prison. So you've got uh, the deacon Stephen killed brutally, being taken boulders, crushed, crushing his body, and him dying. I mean, that had to have taken a little bit of time because he, re- he retained his consciousness because he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. They don't know what they're doing. I'm dying as a martyr, and he knew it. And then immediately you have Saul cheering on Stephen's death, And then saying, let's go get the rest of them. Let's round them all up here in Jerusalem. So they went into every house they knew of who were believers, drugged the men and women out, threw them in jail, and then look and see what happened. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, which, by the way, is exactly what the Great Commission was, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. They weren't moving out fast enough, apparently. And so the Lord gave them some positive motivation through negative reinforcement. Can you think of a time when you you were a five-year-old boy? Yeah, five-year-old girls probably not so much. But you five-year-old boys remember the time that you got positive motivation through negative reinforcement. Can can you identify with that? Do you even have any idea what I'm talking about? (laughs) Discipline, right? (laughs) Okay. And so look what happened. They left, and they they said, if Stephen can do it, we can do it. Bless God, 
by his grace, for his glory, here we go. And what, what, was, what was their context? Their leader and their friend having big giant rocks crushing his bones in his skull and him dying there in front of everybody. The crowd's cheering it on and then they go and gather up all the other... That was the context of them saying, let's go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they went everywhere preaching the gospel. What? What a testimony. I mean, you you got to applaud these folks in verse 4. Amen? And that's what they did. And look, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. I don't know if I said Philip, I meant to say Stephen, Deacon Stephen. I hope I said that in chapter 7. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. About 40 miles north. You say he went down, yet it's 40 miles north. How did he go down? They were up there. They were elevated in Jerusalem. They went, he went down into a valley area and traveled 40 miles north and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of the many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, physical afflictions, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. The church was spilled out of the salt shaker. And like salt, these early believers had penetrating influence and added flavor, the flavor of Christ, to everywhere they went. Many of these first century believers, they left Jerusalem at this time. They settled in the surrounding areas in Judea and Samaria. Very, very clear to say that. Maybe some uh, went, uh, went to Bethlehem, city of David. Maybe some went to Bethany. Maybe some uh, went to Joppa, to Jericho, and like. And we know that some went to Samaria up north, about 40 miles away. These families settled in. They started working for a living. Something put bread on their tables, but their primary mission was to do what Jesus had commissioned them to do and what the apostles told them on the day of Pentecost, and they got about doing that business. Their primary passion was to present Christ. And we notice in verse 1 and 4 that they were scattered in both of those. In both of those terms, same word, it means to be dispersed, to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. And notice the apostles did not go with them. In fact, seemingly, uh, Philip was there. He was a deacon, so he was a church-approved leader. But these are just rank-and-file folks. Uh, from those who had gotten saved, presumably on the day of Pentecost, or were one to the Lord uh, at a later time after that. But these were the laymen who went out, God had saved them, um, they had a testimony, and they began to share, they began to obey the command, the commission that the Lord had given them. So I'm asking you, and I'm asking myself, am I very much out of the salt shaker, or do I kind of like to hover around with fellow salt grains. You see, salt is not designed to, be, to stick together. In fact, we don't like it when salt clumps together, do we? If uh, you, uh, you, well, how does salt clump together? You introduce some of the water vapor of the world uh, into this, and it's going to start clumping together. In other words, worldliness can cause the salt of your life to not really be able to get out there, and any number of other things. Maybe the salt shaker had not been filled up in a long time. Oh, to be sure, the salt shaker goes to church every Sunday, but 
It just keeps going down and down and down. And it's never regularly full. Therefore, it takes a lot to get salt out into the environment. You all following this illustration? That was not the case with these folks. Even under the most dire circumstances, the ones that I have never even come close to facing. I can't even sniff the persecution that they experience seemingly on a regular basis. Right from the get-go. These are new believers. These are young in Christ. Uh, followers. Young followers in Christ. Not necessarily young in age, although they may have been. But new to the faith. And I find it interesting the type of people God calls to himself and those that he sends out. And what type of people is that? Well... 1 Corinthians 1, you don't need to turn to it, 18 to 31 says it's the needy, it's the weak, it's the helpless, it's the hopeless. It's not those who are religious, self-righteous, rich, famous, sophisticated. That's not who he primarily calls. He calls those who are needy to come to himself and then be poured out of the salt shaker and into the world to flavor it, to preserve those within their sphere of influence. Three points I think you can lift. And it's very interesting uh, that uh, in our day, we, we see this particular point in verse 5. And this first one, and don't let it rattle your cage, thinking that I'm preaching a social gospel or that anything such as that. But to the socially outcast, Jesus is someone. He is the all-accepting creator because he has made us all, that is humanity, one. Folks, there are not any God-given races. There are not any God-given classes of people. Uh, uh, Humanity is not in various, we're not stratified, is that the right word? Um, In the eyes of God, because he has said more than once in Scripture, I am no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. And so what? Because he's a creator and he created and uh, uh, had all of us procreated. He's the originator. Therefore, he views everyone as needy and without distinction in that way. But humanity, though, we certainly do uh, look at some as outcasts. In fact, you remember when a couple of the apostles were told that we're following, we're following Jesus, you want to follow him too? He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those are just, uh, those, are, those are the lowlifes. Those are the trashy folks. And he must not be a very prime stock. How can a king come out of Nazareth? And so even to a degree, Jesus was a social outcast in the eyes of some. But this in verse 5 says, they went to the city of Samaria. Now, you don't get worse than that in the eyes of a first century Jew. It's one thing to be a Gentile, but to be a Samaritan is lower than a dog. I mean, the Samaritans came about because when the Jews were taken into captivity of the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria is up north, taken into captivity by Assyria, there was mingling that went on, uh, and a new people group i.e. the Samaritans, came about from that. And the true bloodline Jews hated the Samaritans, were profoundly prejudiced against them. And yet, as soon as the new early believers were scattered, the very first place mentioned that they landed 
uh, and actually set up shop was in Samaria. Folks, um, Scripture says God is not a respecter of persons. And God does not relish the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in unbelievers going to hell. But preacher, don't they deserve that? Don't they deserve punishment for their unbelief and their sin? Absolutely they do. The soul that sinneth shall die. The wages of sin is death. But let me remind you, when I was lost, I deserved that as well. And have you looked in the mirror? You might find that you deserved that as well. That you were an outcast in the eyes of the Lord because of your sin, and I was as well. But he came to accept, to receive those who are outcast. And we need to be very careful. Be very careful. And, uh, and I'm a, uh, I, I've got um, one uh, finger pointing to you and three are pointing back at me. To view those who are unacceptable in our society. The guys underneath the bridge. Uh, the women downtown on the street corner. Uh, the young person who, uh, uh, who is strung out. Folks, they were created through procreation by the same God as you. Amen? And have a soul, have an eternal spirit which has infinite value and needs to be viewed that very way. Why did God raise up a fully functioning orphanage in a little old church in the middle of America, in Haiti, uh, that we have delighted in, in overseeing these past score of years because he wanted the lives of the socially outcast to be touched. Why is he raising up believers in and through this church and other believers in this area to support an orphanage in India where there's the threat of death because it's doing so in the name of Christ. Because even though there are those that society says, you're out there. By the way, Jesus was crucified where? Outside the camp. Where do the lepers go? Outside the camp. Don't you dare come in here. And so there are those in our culture, like the Samaritans, I think I'm preaching in context here, who simply were not redeemable in the eyes of the religious folks. And we must not view them that way. The heart of Jesus in reaching out to the social outcast. Let me very quickly, parenthetically, let you know that a couple of months ago, I had an epiphany. Now, you all know my background. I was a party animal to the nth degree, we'll say it that way, to use, be discreet, when I was lost up until the age of 20. Now, I lived to um, transform my thinking by illicit means through any number of substances. I'm not proud of it, it's just how it is. And when he came into my life, 46 years ago nearly, that radically changed. I had a new nature. A nature created after righteousness and true holiness. Shared that this morning. Ephesians 4, I think that is. 
And I have not imbibed in that sort of thing for, I don't know, a long time, 40-some plus years, 45, 46 years nearly. And when I had my surgery, and I was on prescription narcotics for a few days, which is perfectly legitimate. Boy, I'm being very transparent here. I'm scaring you, aren't I? You're, some of you are ready to take your nitroglycerin because you're getting palpitations even now. And after about five, four or five days, uh, I, I went off. I stopped doing it because I was, I was fine. I mean, I was in pain, but it wasn't like I have ice picks stabbing into the back of my heel like I did have. And <clears throat> I took one at night, about 9, 10 o'clock, because I wanted to be able to sleep through the night. And when you're sleeping, of course, as you move, that in that area that you had surgery, you're going to, uh, <laughs> it's going to let you know. And I did that for about a week. So we're talking 10, 11 days now from surgery. And most of that time, just one uh, uh, of those Percocets at bedtime. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to be able to sleep through the night. At least I'm going to give it a try. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., eyes or saucers, wide awake. Could not go to sleep. Couldn't even think about going to sleep. So what did I do? I thought, well, I'll reach for my handy Percocet. And then I said, I could become dependent. Maybe I had already become dependent and I wasn't even aware of it. With God as my witness, never touched it, haven't picked it up since, and learned very quickly how easy it is how incredibly easy it is to become dependent like the ones underneath the bridges and all and I did not have a sense of holier than thou sweep over me I had a sense of God help the world has captured a lot of people and kicked them to the curb and were not for the grace of God and the conviction and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, uh, I am not so strong that I cannot fail miserably. Amen? Be careful not to judge as being better than those who are outcast in our society. Secondly, did you all get the spirit of that point? I think verse 5 is telling us that. Uh, it's not by accident. Spirit of God led Luke to write that Philip went to Samaria. He didn't go to Bethlehem. He didn't go to Bethany. They followed the deacon to the place where the Jews hated the people, the outcasts. Secondly, to the spiritually oppressed. He's the all-liberating deliverer. Uh, I actually like better than redeemer. Uh, They needed deliverance. Yes, they needed redeemed, but people are lost and in bondage to the depravity of their dead spirits. And in our culture, though, depravity can appear more sophisticated than it does in this culture, if you'll notice in verse 6, first part of verse 7. These are demonized people. Uh, these are, are, uh, um, are folks who are utterly helpless and hopeless. And these spiritually oppressed people were liberated by the message of the gospel. In fact, Jesus spoke to that in Luke 4 and verse 18. He came to preach deliverance 
to the captives. Captives to what? Captive to sin. Captive to depravity. Captive to whatever it is that can um, possess you. In fact, Jesus said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall really be free. Only if he sets you free are you truly free. I am convinced that if I had not gotten saved 46 years ago, I would have continued down that path of practicing my depravity. I mean really taking it to a a new level all the time, or a lower level, I guess I should say, all the time, because there wouldn't have been any restraining influence. Why not? Feels good. I'm having a great time. You know, I bought into that adage um, that you hear so much. Well, I'm only hurting myself. (laughs) Yeah, but God created me, and who am I to mess with God's work of creation? You see? You see that? I'm only hurting myself means I am God of my life, the ultimate sin. And so uh, there are folks who are oppressed, and some people are scary oppressed, mesmerized, hypnotized, uh, and, and people all around us by religion, by the occult, by hypnotic things, drugs. <sighs> Our culture has become so open-minded, our brains have fallen out. Yeah, like we really need marijuana legalized around the country. That's what we need. Uh, l- let's go into a stupor to a greater degree. But let's do it and increase the tax base. After all, we're supporting education with our tax money. Hello? A gateway drug. Been there, done that. No, not in an addictive sense in the same way that other drugs are. But it's an easy, easy transition from THC to you name it, PCP or anything else you'd want to match in there. I am stunning you all, aren't I? <laughs> I mean, someone needs to say it. <sighs> you know, it says in the book of Revelation, outside are dogs, are fornicators, are effeminate, are sorcerers. Greek word is pharmacy. Those who dabble and become addicted to illicit drugs. What is the most misused drug in the history of mankind? I, I did, I, I'm sorry. What was it? The most misused drug in the history of mankind is what? Oh, you guys said it. I didn't. Out of the salt shaker into the world to address the spiritual need of the oppressed. Thirdly, to the physically overcome, he's the comforter. And we see that at the end of verse 7 and 8. Many taken with palsy, paralyzed, lame, all kinds of things were healed. Great joy in that city. Of course, as you know, God had given the gift of, of miracles in that first century to authenticate the message. So many places in Scripture do we see that given as the reason. And I'm convinced that that gift 
has died out. The God of miracles has not died out. The power of the God of miracles has not, but the gift given to believers. For if it is still active, then we would see as the norm, because this was the norm. All kinds of paralyzed people were raised up to full health. All kinds of lame, the blind, the, the, the deaf, and, and, the, and the like. But we don't, in fact, see that ever. Not once in a blue moon, not occasionally, we don't see the dead being raised back to physical life. That era has passed because we now have a more sure word of prophecy. Second Peter 1. <clears throat> so what do we do about it? We take the spirit of 2 Corinthians 1.3 to those who need comfort. We tell the lost. He is the father of mercies. He will take care of your sin problem through forgiveness. He is the God of all comfort. He will absolutely take care of the anguish of your soul so that drugs and alcohol and whatever else does not have to, which it can't. All it can do is mask it because he is the God of all comfort. So how can I actually, in the 21st century, right now, help someone who is terminally ill? Brother Mark, I don't know if, uh, if John watches the service on Sunday evening, uh, uh, but Mark's twin brother, Todd's dad, has ALS. Lou Gehrig's disease, as you all know. I visited him a few times uh, in the past few months, and physically he's growing weaker and weaker. What can I actually do to help him in a gospel way? And by the way, he knows the Lord loves Christ, filled with joy. What can I do with the woman in the hut in Haiti who lives in a mud and and straw hut, literally, uh, on a bed of straw, and has AIDS, and weighs 50 pounds less than she should weigh for good for, literally, I mean, I mean, weighed when I saw her 65 pounds and was five foot five. What am I going to do for her? And I don't speak her language, by the way. Our culture is different. Our skin tone is different. I'm a guy. She's a gal. I'm old. She's young. I'm healthy. She's ready to die with AIDS that day. What can I do for her? I going to do for the 30-year-old woman running through, rifling through a half a dozen jobs every year with five children, two, three, four, five different fathers of those children? What in the world do I, what am I going to do for her? What are you going to do for someone like that? How can I minister to those whose life is such a mess that it seems unfixable. What I can do, and the only thing I can do, and the most that I can do and that you can do, is to share the hope of everlasting life and the assurance that God is near the one who will call upon him. You say, well, that's kind of an easy out. There isn't any better answer to that person's life situation than that. 
that is the answer. Because at age 20, on a path aggressively headed toward hell and condemnation and judgment uh, and, uh, and polluting itself and, and all the rest of the vices, the vile vices which I possessed, I was radically changed from death unto life, from depravity unto liberty, and with a hope of a future. Well, he did that. And so I shared the gospel with that woman. 18 hours later, she was dead. I communicate to others who are hurting the testimony of Mark's brother, how that these are the greatest days of joy of his life. I've talked about Kathy's mom to many. I've talked about my years as a caregiver. Those were my best years, maybe, of experiencing the fresh presence of the Lord. In other words, you have everything to offer those who don't have anything. You have the only thing to offer those who don't have anything, and that is life in Christ. But it means you got to say, Lord, I'm so full of you that I'm overflowing onto those around me. I'm permeating my space. I'm flavoring everything I touch, as was the case in the first century. You see, you can say to someone with authority, if you will call upon Christ, not that you're making a deal, let me tell you the hope that there is, the assurance that he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. You can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I'm not going to fear these consequences and these circumstances. If I'm heading to the gallows, if I'm heading to the uh, the, the fiery furnace, i.e., Shadrach, Meshach, and God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're going to serve him, and we'll see him when we wake up in his presence. You have everything to offer those who are physically infirmed, those who are socially outcast, those who are spiritually oppressed and dead, in fact. That's pretty, that's pretty severe oppression when you're spiritually dead. It's about as oppressed as you can get. And you have the only answer for that person. The only one, you, you have the only answer that the, that the world history and everything, all the collective wisdom of mankind, you alone as a believer have the answer for the need of that person. Folks, a, size, a church the size of Redbridge, with the theological understanding that we have, with the resources available to us, i.e., we do understand biblical theology, and we do understand uh, the, the grace of God in salvation, and we do have uh, uh, resources to minister to folks. With all of that, the blessings that I've experienced and you've experienced, we ought to be making a significant impact in our area. We ought to be making, we actually should be That's just simply what Scripture teaches, that if you abide in me, that is, you're filled up with me, John 15, I'm abiding in you, I've given you a commission, a command, and I'm going to delight in you you doing that. When that is happening, he says, some of you will be 
fruitful 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, you'll be fruitful. You'll bear fruit. Some fruit, more fruit, much fruit. But you're going to bear fruit. And I'm going to bear fruit. And so if I'm not bearing fruit, then I need to ask myself, am I out of the salt shaker? Don't get me wrong. I know fully well, and you know, God must touch the heart. He must change it. He must grant repentance and faith. I can't do any of that. But I'm convinced by the authority of God's Word that this seems like the norm for the early believers, that they went out preaching the gospel everywhere, and they saw lives radically changed if we were out of the salt shaker to a greater degree and into the world to a greater degree, we would see fruit to the degree that God wants us to see it. But we would see fruit. Is that consistent with biblical theology in your view? We will be fruit bearers. That is, others will come along and will follow him. So, evaluate it in your, own, in your own life. Make it your life mission. If you haven't already, then I'm not staying in the co- cozy confines of the salt shaker. I'm not living there. I'm going to be out there, engaging, confronting, talking to, visiting with, praying with, sharing with those Lepers, those dignitaries, those druggies, those religionists, or whoever God brings across your path. I want to be used of the Lord in that way. I'm confident you do as well. Lord, I'm thankful for your word and the power of it, the truth of it. Thankful for you using one of your children to write that book. What a, a, what a great illustration, object lesson. Because you said we're salt. And you said we're light. And we're not to cover up our light with a bushel basket, but let it shine. Are we going to hide it under a bushel? No. Lord, move on us to let it shine. Move on us to let the salt out of the shaker and permeate the world around us. The gospel message. Use us, Lord, in that way so that your name would be high and lifted up in and through our lives. We'll give you thanks for doing that, for you calling us into your field to see you harvest souls. My, what a calling. Bless our lives toward that end, Lord Jesus, in your name.